Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. It's through 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Jim didn't do any of those. He just did 1, 2, and 3. To his consternation, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. Now, these were good alcoholics. Jim got sober six times in a row. And each time, they went over there and very carefully worked with him, reviewing what had happened. You get drunk six times in a row today, they probably won't have anything to do with you. These were good 12 separate good alcoholics. And he agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the treatment center if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had deep affection. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. They're getting a little bit tired, Jim, now. <laughs> they, said, they said, my God, Jim, this is seven times in a row you've been drunk. Let's don't go through this anymore. Let's sit down here and you tell us just exactly how that happened. We're going to look into the mind of Jim now, and, and the first half of this page, it talks about when he was when he was sane, and then it talks about where he went insane. He said, this is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. Now, we read this book for years before we saw that. I came to work on Tuesday morning. <laughs> yeah. I wonder where he was all day Monday. We were bad about Mondays. <laughs> He said, I remember I felt irritated. I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. And I don't think that's insanity. That's probably normal. I think if any of us had to be a salesman for a concern that we once owned, we might be a little bit irritated by that, too. That's probably normal, sane thinking. He said, I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. The boss probably said, say, by the way, Jim, where were you all day yesterday? Anyhow, <laughs> nothing serious. Just want to know where he was. See, he was a little restless, a little irritated, and a little discontented. Then I decided to drive into the country to see one of my prospects for a car. Apparently this guy is a car salesman. What would be more normal than if you're a little bit irritated at the boss, you want to get away from the shop for a while, drive out in the country to see somebody we already know to sell a car to. Normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. On the way I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I'd get a sandwich. What would be more normal? Then if you're hungry, stop in a place to get a sandwich. The fact that they got a bar in there is absolutely beside the point. We have no intention of drinking. We're hungry. We're going to get a sandwich. Normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. Mm -hmm. So I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I've been going to it for years. I'd eaten there many times during the months that I was sober. We're not going in there to drink. And this is nothing new. We've been in there many times during the months we're sober. We're going in there to get a sandwich and maybe sell a car while we're in there. Normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. Just sat down at the table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. What's more normal than if you're hungry to sit down at the table, order a sandwich and a glass of milk? Normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. 
Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Now, if you're hungry enough, there's nothing wrong with two sandwiches and two glasses of milk. Unless you're a member of Overeaters Anonymous, you ought to look at it closely. And two sandwiches and two glasses of milk's normal sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. Then the italic. Now comes the squiggly writing. It says suddenly. That means right now. Suddenly. The thought crossed my mind that if I would put an ounce of whiskey in the milk, it wouldn't hurt me on a full stomach. Now that's, that's absolute, complete insanity for this alcoholic car salesman to think that he can take whiskey and mix it with milk and it wouldn't hurt him on a full stomach. Now, based on the lie, based on the insane idea, he makes a decision and takes some action. He said, I ordered whiskey and poured it into the milk. And I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. But felt reassured I was taking whiskey on a full stomach. Now then we've got the whiskey inside ourselves. The phenomenon of craving starts to develop. The allergy takes over. Let's see where we go from here. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Every time that he put the whiskey in the milk, he was running two drinks. <laughs> Have you ever tried to put whiskey in milk? Not good. <laughs> Tastes pretty good going down. Not very good coming up. <laughs> Thus started one more journey to the treatment center for Jim. Here was a threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering with drinking always caused him. Now, he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? If you were looking for a definition of insanity, there it is. The lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else. That's insanity. Now, is Jim's real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol, that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol mixed with milk on a full stomach? The real problems of the alcoholic centers of mind telling us we can drink rather than the body that ensures that we can't successfully drink. Again, an example of the insanity of alcoholism. Now, you may th think this is an extreme case. To us, it's not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there's always a curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. The next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. In some circumstances, we've gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we begin to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. 
You know, I used to say to myself, well, hell, I might as well go ahead and get drunk. Couldn't feel any worse than I feel now. And I'd take a drink, and I'd end up drunk, and I always felt a hell of a lot worse coming off of that drunk than I did before I got on the thing. Very little serious thought prior to the taking of the first drink. We only see what it's going to do for us rather than what it's going to do to us. You know, this curious mental phenomenon that he referred to is the obsession of the mind. An obsession, disturbing preoccupation with an idea or feeling. He had, was, had this occupation, this disturbing occupation with this idea or feeling, this curious mental phenomenon, they call it, which is the obsession of the mind. It's stronger than his willpower. Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. Now, I don't understand this guy at all, mm -hmm. but I can see him standing out here at the side of a busy street, waiting for a big bus or a truck to come down through there, jumps out in front of it, spins around two or three times, sees how close it can come to hitting him without actually hitting him. For some reason, he gets a thrill out of that. I don't understand it, but apparently he does. Now, he enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. People are saying, hey, Jack, you better quit doing that. You keep doing that, you're going to get hurt. He pays no attention to them. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he's slightly injured several times in succession. He's getting a little older now. He can't move as fast. <laughs> they begin to hit him once in a while. Nothing serious. He just kind of bounces off of them. Now, you would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. But presently, he's hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. He got hurt pretty bad this time. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He gets hurt pretty bad again. Now, he sings their national anthem. He says, I'm through with that jaywalking. I'll never jaywalk again as long as I live, period. He tells you he's decided to stop jaywalking for good. But in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. Now, on through the years, his conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. He's just so beat up physically now he can't hold a job. His wife gets a divorce. She's tired of supporting him and the kids and the hospital bills, and he's held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head, not his body, his head. He shuts himself up in a treatment center, hoping to mend his ways. <laughs> I get up for everything else. Hell, he might as well have one for jaywalking, too. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? Now, you may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, we've been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? Oh, I think that's so appropriate today. You know, again, because of, because of education about alcoholism, many, many people are getting to AA today. 
before they have to lose everything. And sometimes you see somebody come in today and they may still have a job. Well, once in a while somebody comes in, hell, they're still buried. Uh, I saw a guy come in not long ago and he still had an automobile. He really did. Believe me, he did. And we start talking about insanity to those people and they say, oh, no, no, man, I'm not insane. I haven't lost, haven't lost my job. I still got my family. I got my car. No, we're not talking about those things. However intelligent we may be in other respects, where alcohol itself has been involved, we've been strangely insane. And some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we've not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to, for we understand ourselves so well after what you told us that such things cannot happen again. We've not lost everything in life through drinking. We certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. I remember the day I told them that, too. <laughs> Kiss my what? No. Jim, Jim is what we call a low-bottom drunk. Jim had lost everything. He'd lost his job. He'd lost everything near and dear to him. And when a guy is a, a woman, a man or a woman is a real low-bottom drunk, sometimes it's easier to see the insanity than it is if, than if we're a high-bottom drunk. Now, a high-bottom drunk is one who comes to AA that hasn't lost anything really in the material world, still got the job, still got the family, still got the car, still got a lot of things. And if you haven't really lost anything from alcohol, it's a little bit harder to see that insanity. So he's going to give us an example to point out to us that whether we're low-bottom or high-bottom makes no difference. We get drunk exactly the same way. We get drunk by, leap, by believing a lie just before we take the first drink. And we're going to look at a fellow named Fred, and we're going to look at Fred's mind and see what he believed just before he took the first drink. Joe? We have a lot of people like Fred coming into AA today, and some of us tell our war stories and our horror stories about being divorced, married seven times, and been in jail 159 times, and had 49 car wrecks and all that stuff. And, and the guy said, well, I haven't done all that, so therefore I must not be alcoholic. And he walks out the door. But he is just as alcoholic as we are. Because how many car wrecks makes an alcoholic? None. You know, and why, that's why in working with others, he says, continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a malady. Talk to them about the illness of alcoholism, about the physical allergy, the obsession of the mind, and we won't be running these people off. Because sometimes we like to embellish our stories just a little bit with these folks. But Fred was a high-bottom drunk, but he's just as alcoholic as anybody else. Now, the paragraph just before Fred still referring to the high-bottom drunk, where he said, thanks for the, the information. For the information. He said, that may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolish and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate. We've talked about the heavy drinker already, because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize. To smash home upon our alcoholic readers that has been revealed to us out of bitter experience, 
Let us take another illustration. Now we're going to look at Fred. And Fred hadn't lost anything. No, Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm, and his income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married, and father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it's Fred. To all appearance, he's a stable, well-balanced individual. Yet he is alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from bad cases of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. We see lots of nerve resters in AA today, just, <laughs> just like old Fred. The, doc the doctor intimated strongly that it might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. Now, he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic. Fred wouldn't take step one, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. You can't take one, you can't take two. Now, we told him what we knew of alcoholism. They told him about one and two. And he, listened, and he was interested and conceded he had some of the symptoms. But he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about himself. He was positive that his humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. Now, we heard no more of Fred for a while. One day, we were, in, we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time, he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told us is most instructive. For here is a chap, absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Well, let him tell you about it. He said, I was much, much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. And I rather appreciate your ideas about that subtle insanity which precedes the first rank, but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I'd learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I, that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and I would therefore be successful where you men fail. I felt I had every right to be self-confident. It would be only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. Now, in this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for a time, all was well. I had no trouble with using drinks, and I began to wonder if I had not made, been making too hard a turn with a simple matter. We think Fred started getting drunk about there. One day I went to Washington to present the accounting evidence to a government bureau. I'd been out of town during this particular dry spell. There was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. Old Fred was doing good, wasn't he? Making good money, good family, good business. Everything was wonderful for Fred this day. Old Fred is just flat floating along, everything is fine. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails and go back to the hospital. <laughs> now that's the truth, isn't it? That's the truth. But he couldn't, he couldn't drink on the truth. He said it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. Now, based on this insane idea, 
based upon the lie. He makes a decision and takes some action. I ordered a cocktail in my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. Now we've got it inside ourselves now. The physical allergy takes over. After dinner, I decide to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I'd made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I'd commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. Old Jim, he vaguely sensed he wasn't any too smart. Fred didn't even sense that. Fred just thought a couple of cocktails with dinner would be great. That's all. Nothing more. Based on the insane idea. He orders a drink, puts it in his system, the allergy takes over, and he ends up drunk and sick all over again. Now, is his real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol, that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol? You see, when we, many times we alcoholics get drunk because we don't feel good. But also many times we get drunk because we feel good too. Mm-hmm. And he was on top of the world and feeling great. And ended up taking a drink and got drunk all over again. The insanity of alcoholism. Let's go over to page 43. You know, Bill tried to say sober on self-knowledge. Roland tried to say sober on self-knowledge. Jim tried to say sober on self-knowledge. Fred tried to say sober on self-knowledge. And he told us through all those illustrations. And he's going to tell us once more. So he already told us five or six times. Afraid we we're going to miss it. So he's going to tell us once more. Last paragraph on page 43. The alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must, there's that word again, his defense must come from a higher power. So you can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. We can't think our way out of it. The more we try to think our way out of it, the deeper into it we get. Because we're trying to heal a sick mind with a sick mind. And it can't be done. Not with self-knowledge. What really, really impresses me in that last paragraph, he said the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. He didn't say the drinking alcoholic. He just said the alcoholic. And that means today, even though I'm sober and have been sober for quite some time, I have no mental defense against the first drink. My defense must come from a power greater than I am. And I think for those of us in AA that are working with new people, I think we really, really need to take the new person to this chapter Go through this chapter with them, really word for word. Talk to them about the insanity of alcoholism. Pointing out that the insanity is not the things we do when drinking. 
not those crazy things that happen when we're drunk. The insanity is to believe the lie just before we take the first drink. We need to point out to the newcomer it doesn't make any difference whether you're high bottom, low bottom, or whatever. We still get drunk exactly the same way by believing something that is not true and then making a decision and taking the action upon that belief. The insanity of alcoholism. I had a friend of mine about two years ago, his daughter, I saw her and she was in AA and asked me if I'd call him. I said, what happened? He said, well, he got drunk again. This guy's been sober 29 years. And I called him up and I said, what happened? Tell me what happened. I, wanted, I knew what happened, but I wanted him to tell me. He said, well, he quit going to meetings. He quit praying. He quit working the steps. He quit helping other people. And he, he said, it was just like Fred's story. He said, one day I woke up and it seemed the most natural thing for me to do was take a drink. Didn't even hardly think about it. Just started taking a drink and I'm drunk. And I'm trying to get back to AA now. That was two years ago. I don't know if he's made it back yet or not. But you see, it's always just one day at a time, isn't it? Always. Now, what Bill's done for me in the book up to this point, he's been able to show me the problem and the doctor's opinion in Bill's story. Been able to see the powerless condition of the mind and the body. Been able to see the information necessary for step one. He's also shown me a solution to that powerless condition. He gave me two powers, the power of the fellowship which supports me, the power of the vital spiritual experience which changes me. Knowing full well I wouldn't like that power, dealing with God or spirituality or religion or whatever, he was able to show me in chapter 3 what's going to happen to me if I don't find that power. At the end of chapter 3, he's closed the door on me now. There's no more doubt in my mind that if I don't find the power greater than I am, that because of my insanity, sooner or later I'll go back to drinking. And if you're the kind of alcoholic that I am, and if you were raised in a church setting that I was raised in, you would find yourself at the end of chapter 3 facing one hell of a dilemma. I knew that there's no way that I'm going to be able to stay sober without finding the power greater than human power, or God as I, as I then understood him. And my dilemma was this, I knew that God would have nothing to do with me that was good, based upon the things that I had done in the past. You see, I had some real, real ideas about this God thing. And my ideas about this God thing were developed in my mind when I was a young kid growing up in church. And I was raised in a good old Southern Baptist church. Now, I got nothing wrong with it then, got nothing wrong with it today. It's a great church. And I'm sure in a good old Southern Baptist church, they talk about a kind and a loving God. But if they did when I went to church, that message never got to the pew that I sat in. Because all I ever remember as a kid growing up about God was hell, fire, and brimstone. Going to hell for lying and cheating and stealing and drinking whiskey and committing adultery. And by the time I got to AA, I'd been doing that for about 26 years. And I knew that God had already told St. Peter when that little four-eyed sucker gets up here, send him downstairs, we'll not need his kind. You know, I remember so clearly 
so clearly when I separated from God. When I was this young kid going to church, they gave me the rules. They told me what I could do and what I couldn't do. They said, if you do this, this, and this, you'll be okay. If you do that, that, and that, you're going to hell just sure as anything. And I had no problems with those rules until I got to be about 12 or 13 years old. And one day it seemed to me as though the minister looked me directly in the eye and he said, to think about doing it is just as bad as doing it. And I said, oh, shit, I've had it now. Because I'd been thinking about doing it for a year or two. In fact, I'd been thinking about doing it so long I was beginning to get a little brain damage from it. And I thought, if you're going to go to hell for thinking about doing it, then you just might as well go ahead and do it. And I did. And I didn't go to hell immediately. And I said to myself, that sucker has been lying to me all along. And I made up my mind that day that that minister and my teachers and my parents had joined together in a conspiracy to keep me from having any fun. And I said, from this day on, I'm not going to pay any attention to what any of them has to say. I'm going to do whatever I want to, and if it's fun, I'm going to do it again. And I'm not going to pay any attention to the rest of them. I'm going to do it any time that I please. And I walked away from church. I walked away from God. I walked away from parental and teacher discipline. And from that day on, I did things my way. I was about 12, 13 years old. Now, when I got to AA, the first time I walked in the door, I was 38 years old. And I came here in the body of a 38-year-old man with the spiritual knowledge of a 12-year-old kid, absolutely terrified about God. It would seem to be an impossibility for me to ever, ever be able to develop a good relationship with God as I then understood Him. Thank God Bill Wilson was a real alcoholic. Thank God he knew how I was going to feel about this God thing because he felt the same way. He had the same kind of problems. And I think he said to himself, what I really better do is sit down and give those guys like Charlie some new information about this God thing so he'll be able to cast aside some of those old ideas and replace them with a new set of ideas so he'll be able to make a decision about the God thing. And without the new information about God that I found in chapter 4, there's no way that I would ever have been able to make the decision that's called upon in step, that I'm called upon to make in step 3. Thank God for this next chapter, we agnostics. Nowhere in this chapter does it try to prove to me that there's any kind of God. Nowhere in this chapter does it try to force any religious ideas on me, period. What it does is give me some new information for me so I can develop some new ideas and cast aside those old ideas. And since that time, God has proven to me there is a kind and a loving God. But it couldn't have happened if I couldn't have made the decision. And I couldn't make the decision based upon old ideas 
an old knowledge show. And I said, the Gnostic means knowledge. You put the ag in front of it, it means without. Those of us who are without knowledge. And I'm like Charlie. When I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy. And I told myself way back then, if I was getting big enough they couldn't catch me, I wasn't going no more either to church. And I got big enough they couldn't catch me, and I didn't go. So when I arrived here, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy. And remember, Bill knew that I, that I was that he felt just exactly like I did. He said, when they talked of a God personal to me, my mind snapped shut against such theories. And when I come into AA and I saw the God idea on the wall, my mind snapped shut. I said, one more time, I'm faced with this thing. I'd already rejected it many, many times. And remember, a little bit later on, it said, when the spiritual malady is overcome, the spiritual misunderstanding, the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. This chapter here helps me straighten out the spiritual malady. Because when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And as Charlie said, this chapter is not in here to tell us that there's any particular type of religion or God or anything else. It's simply in here that for me to open up my mind so that God might prove to me there's a God. A whole new way of looking at things. This chapter, we agnostic. Yeah, Father, Bill. Yeah, Father Bill Wilson, some of y'all, did y'all know Father Bill from La Jolla, California? Anybody? Well, Father Bill was an exceptional man. At the age of 15, he was taken to the University of Rome, and he studied there for 30 years and got to drinking a little bit of the sacrificial wine that they had over there. And for, for punishment to him, after 30 years of study, they sentenced him to go to La Jolla, California. That's quite a punishment, isn't it? <laughs> go to La Jolla. Well, anyhow, Father Bill said that when he, he got into Alcoholics Anonymous, and he read this chapter, We Agnostic. He said this was the greatest piece of spiritual information that he had ever read. A man who studied for 30 years at the University of Rome. Got three doctorates while he was there. Three doctorates in the arts, yeah. The greatest piece of spiritual information that he had ever read. He told Charlie and I, he said, this chapter, again, is not here to to tell us any particular type of God. He said, it's simply to open up my mind and let God prove to me that there's a God. I simply have to ask the question, what does this mean to me? What do I think about that? I have to lay aside the old ideas and be accept, able to accept new ideas. And, and over a period of time, God will disclose to you that there's a God. And he said, you'll have a God of your understanding that nobody, including the Pope, could improve upon. That's quite a statement for a man like Father Bill. So on page uh, 44, we agnostics. In the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. That's because of the obsession. Or if, when drinking, you have little control of the amount you take. That's because of the allergy. You are probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness, which only a spiritual experience will conquer. We love the simplicity of the big book. Two little questions to determine if you're alcoholic. I use them all the time. People come to me today and they say, Charlie, you think I might might be an alcoholic? And I say, well, I don't know. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you been able to quit drinking entirely, left on your own resources? If they're a real alcoholic, they got to say no. I say, do you have any control over the amounts you take after you once start drinking? 
If they're a real alcoholic, they got to say no. And I say, well, then you're probably an alcoholic. And it's just that simple. But you see how people like to expand on things. The fellowship took these two little questions out of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Next thing you know, we had a pamphlet that had ten questions in it to see if you're alcoholic. And it wasn't too long after that, they came out with another one that had 20 questions in it to see if you're alcoholic. Hell, I think we're up to 44 questions today. And we only need two little questions. Joe and I had an old friend that used to live in Tyler, Texas. His name was Wino Joe. <laughs> I've always felt sorry for anybody in AA that didn't get to meet Wino Joe. He was a real character. Wino Joe made up his own list of questions to see if you're alcoholic. And the first question he had on his list was, has the roof of your mouth ever been sunburned? Well, well drinking. <laughs> Joe used to lay out in those cotton fields down there in Texas and drink that wine with his mouth open and get sunburned. <clears throat> the second question on his list was, you ever been arrested for drunk driving from the back seat of somebody else's car? <laughs> And the third one, which I always loved, have you ever been arrested for public drunk while in jail? Yeah. <laughs> oh, say, we just need two. There's a little question in the 44 questions. I like it real well. It says, do you drink alone? If I'm buying, yes. And if you're buying, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Now, the last sentence in the first paragraph. If that be the case... You may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. You know, we are very, very unique people. We number amongst a few people in the world today that have a twofold illness, an illness of the body as well as an illness of the mind, that can only be overcome by a spiritual experience. We also number amongst a few people in the world today who have a terminal illness that if we can have this spiritual experience, we can come out of it in better shape than we were when we went into it. Very, very unique people. You know, if your willpower doesn't work because the obsession of the mind is stronger than the will, there's only one thing stronger than the obsession of the mind, and that's the spiritual experience. And that's why we have to have it, to overcome the obsession to drink. Now, to one who feels he's an atheist or agnostic, such an experience may seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he's an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. To be doomed to an alcoholic death, step one, or to live on a spiritual basis, step two, are not always easy alternatives to face. But it isn't so difficult. About half our original fellowship were of exactly that type. At first, some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we were not true alcoholics. But after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find the spiritual basis of life or else. Perhaps it's going to be that way with you. But cheer up. Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics, and our experience shows that you need not be disconcerted. Now think what Bill's really saying here. It really doesn't make any difference what you believe as far as God's concerned. You're still going to be able to have a spiritual experience. 
providing you're willing to do certain things. And we find today that there's really only about three ways you can believe in God anyhow. But some people profess to be an atheist. Now, an atheist is one who says there is no God. And since there is no God, a spiritual experience would seem to be an impossibility for the atheist. And the atheist would have to stand on their own two feet, run their own show, make their own decisions, rule their own destiny, because they got no power greater than human power to turn to. I have never seen a true atheist in AA. I've seen one or two that said they were, but it turned out that they were not. Most people believe that there is some kind of power in this universe that runs the whole show. But even if you are atheist, you're still going to be able to have the spiritual experience if you're willing to do certain things. Another way you can believe in God is to be an agnostic. An agnostic is one that says there probably is a God, but since you can't prove it to me, I'm not going to take a chance on it. I'm going to stand on my own two feet. I'm going to run my own show. I'm going to rule my own destiny. And the agnostic gets no more help from God than the atheist does. The word agnostic itself means... Without knowledge. Those who are without knowledge. You know, the word ag and gnostic together simply means without knowledge. Even though we may believe in a God... We have no knowledge of God, so therefore we get no help from God any more than the atheist does. Most people coming to AA are probably agnostic, because most of us believed in a God of some kind. But our problem is we didn't turn to that God for help. We ran our own show and made our own decisions, and therefore received no help from that God as we understood him at that time. The only other way you can believe in God is to be a true believer. Now, a true believer is one that not only believes there is a God, but is willing to turn to that God and ask for the help and do the things that they think God wants them to do. And the end result is they get the help and they know there is a God. And you can only be one of the three. Atheist, agnostic, or a true believer. Now, if we, would, if we had been true believers before we came here, we wouldn't have needed AA anyhow, because we would have turned to God and got the help before we ever came to AA. I think most of us come here as agnostics. I know I did. Never any question in my mind about whether there's a God or not. I just did not believe that God would help me. Therefore, I ran my own show, made my own decisions, and rule my own destiny. And the end result is I damn near died from alcoholism. Now the book says if a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. You know, we alcoholics are not drunken bums. Drunken bums are about where they want to be. They're not too interested in changing the situation. We alcoholics may be there with a drunken bum, but we don't want to be there. We have a set of morals. 
We have a philosophy of life. We know what we're supposed to be doing. When we're not doing the right things, we know that. And if those morals and those philosophies and those codes of life, if they had saved us, many of us were recovered from alcoholism a long time ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us, no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might. But the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Now, the atheist and agnostic are working on human resources, not God's resources, and they failed completely. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how are we to find this power? I think this is one of the most important statements in the big book, period. Lack of power. That was our dilemma. Now, you and I are in AA today for one reason and one reason only. We couldn't find any other way to stay sober. We didn't have the power to stay sober. If we could have found the power in any other way, we wouldn't be members of AA today. Now, I've never seen a, a, a young fella take a drink of whiskey when he's age 14 and say, I can hardly wait to become a member of AA when I'm 42. We're here because we had no place else to go. This is the court of last resort for us. And if we could have found the power in any other way, we would have done so. So our real dilemma is a lack of power. And the question becomes then, if we lack the power, how do we find that power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find the power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. It doesn't say which will help you solve it. It doesn't say which will enable you to solve it. It said the main object is to find the power greater than yourself. And then that power will solve the problem. And I find interestingly enough, from page 45 on, we don't talk about alcohol anymore. We talk about one thing and one thing only. For those of us who are powerless, and that's all of us, or we wouldn't be here, how do you find the power? And if you can find the power, then the power will solve the problem. And if I'm going to find that power, I'm going to have to know where to start. Because I can't just say, okay, give me the power. I've got it. You know, I've tried that forever before I came to AA. So if I'm going to have to find the power, where am I going to start? Let's go over to page 46. First full paragraph. Yes, we have agnostic temperament. Said, yes, we have agnostic temperament will have these thoughts and experiences. Let us make haste to reassure you. We found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice, old ideas, and express even the willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define and comprehend that power, which is God. 
Much to our relief, we discovered that we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and effect the contact with him. First old idea cast aside. You know, this thing says, much to our relief, we discover we do not need to consider another's conception of God. And just like we said back in Bill's story, hell, we can have our own conception of God. I don't have to believe that God's hellfire and brimstone if I don't want to. The kind and a loving God that stands willing and able to help anybody anywhere at any time if they'll turn to him. You see, in the church I was raised in, you couldn't do that. Hell, that was blasphemy. You either believed as they believed, or you going to hell just sure as anything. And what a great relief to be able to discard that idea and accept a new idea. And I can have my own mm-hmm. conception of God. And like we said in Bill's story, the reason that works so great for we alcoholics is we don't have any trouble with our own conception of anything. Yeah, let me believe in God the way I want to believe in God. Then it's an entirely different ball of wax. First old idea cast aside, replaced with a new idea. I don't have to believe like they believed. I can believe the way I want to believe. My sponsor at the time, he said, Joe, you're having trouble with this idea about God, aren't you? And I said, I'm having a terrible time. Because remember, my knowledge was that of a seven-year-old boy. Had to be terrible. And he said, why don't you do what he did? He said, why don't you lay aside all that information that you think that you know or have learned and go home tonight and get your pencil and piece of paper out, realize that you can't make God. But if you could, what would you want your God to be? And I went home and said, I didn't know you could do that. Over in Oklahoma and Southern Baptist, Holy Roller, you go to hell for doing that. But I went home that night and I wrote down some things that I would like God to be. And I showed him to him the next day. And he said, that's good. You can start right there. See, I needed permission to start somewhere. I was looking for a starting place. And he said, well, it's good. You can start right there. And that's what I did, my own conception. As soon as we admit the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we begin to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. We found that God does not make too hard a terms with those who seek him. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men and women. See, I, I said, do you mean I've got to find God? And he looked at me and said, Joe, God's not lost. <laughs> if, you've been, if you've been here since the beginning of time, yeah. it's hard to get lost. Yeah. And he said, it's not in the finding of God anyhow. It's in the seeking. You see, it says... We found that God doesn't make, does not make too hard a term with those who seek Him. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive, or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. If you will seek God in your life, and you pray that God will be in your life, and you seek God in your life, God will disclose Himself to you. As I look back on, my, on that statement to the, to the day, every year, every year of my life in sobriety, my will has changes, which is my thinking. My life has changed, which is my actions, and my understanding of God changes, because it goes on and on. You can't ever understand God. If I could understand God, it'd be too little to help me. So I, God is everything, or else He's nothing. It's in the seeking. It's not in the finding. 
what Joe just read, it said without it, God does make does not make too hard terms with those who seek Him. Another old idea cast aside. Because you see, I was taught the way to God is a very straight and a very narrow path. And if you fall off of it on either side, you're going to hell just sure as anything. And this, this doesn't say that. This says that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek Him. To us, the realm of the Spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive. I was taught if you don't believe as they taught you're going, or they, they, they believe you're going to hell just sure as anything. And this says that isn't true. It says this thing is all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. And what that means to me is God stands ready to help any human being. I don't care who they are. I don't care where they're from. I don't care what they believe. And it's not going to be that difficult a task to be able to find this power greater than human power. I thought it would be almost an impossible situation, but this is saying, no, that isn't true. Old idea cast aside, new idea takes its place. I'm already beginning to change my opinion of this God as I understand Him. Let's go to page 47. So when therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies too to other spiritual expressions which you find in this book. Do not let any prejudice, old ideas, you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. That's the only question. Honestly asking myself what they mean to me. At the start, this is all we need to commence spiritual growth, to affect our first conscious relation with God as we understood Him. And then afterward, we found ourselves accepting many things which then seemed entirely out of reach. That was growth, but if we wished to grow, we had to begin somewhere. So we used our own conception, however limited it was. I needed a starting point. I started a very simple, simple idea, and my ideas have changed over the period of years. Now here's where we start. We needed to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe? The agnostic has always believed in God. Or am I even willing to believe? The atheist can become willing to believe in God. That there's a power greater than myself. And as soon as a man can say that he does believe, the agnostic always willing to believe, the atheist, we emphatically assure him that he's on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. Again, the asterisk, please be sure to read Appendix 2 on spiritual experience. <laughs> My sponsor said, Joe, if you can't find a power greater than yourself, at least find one other than yourself. <laughs> So all I have to do to start this ball rolling is simply ask myself this question. Do I now believe? I've always believed in some kind of God. The belief might have been wrong, but I've always believed in some kind of God. That's the agnostic. Or am I even willing to believe? If I'm an atheist, I can become willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. And the book says it has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. Asterisk, bottom of the page, please be sure to read Appendix 2 on spiritual experience. The wonderfully effective spiritual structure that we're going to build is the spiritual experience. I referred to it 
as such right here. And I've already now put two stones in place. Step one, willingness. We were told that was the foundation of this structure. And step two, believing is a cornerstone of this structure. Later on, he'll tell us exactly what this structure is going to be. You see, we don't have to wait till step 12 to start getting things out of this. Each step that we use puts another stone in place, and we begin to get results from them almost immediately. You know, that those couple of three paragraphs before this, and that asterisk in the back of the book, and it says to me, this was great news for us, that information was great news for us, for it assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith which seemed difficult to believe. And here he separates faith from belief. Two different words entirely. And one problem I always had with this God thing is the minister always said, Son, you got to have faith. Hell, I never could have faith. Faith means knowledge. Faith means surety. Faith means after-the-fact information. Belief is nothing more than upfront information. Step two said we came to believe. It didn't say we came to know. It said we came to believe. There's a world of difference between belief and faith. Let me give you an example. Let's say I moved into this Sacramento area, and a few months after I move in here, I have trouble with my automobile. I don't know a good mechanic anywhere in this area. But you lived here for years, and I, I'm pretty sure you'll know somebody. So I come to you and say, look, I've got a problem with my car. Can you recommend a good mechanic for me? And you say, why, sure. Take it over there to John. John will do you a good job. He'll charge you a reasonable price. Well, I don't know whether that information's right or not. But if I believe it's strong enough, I'll take my car to John. And sure enough, he does a good job. He charges me a reasonable price. When I went there, I believed he would do that. When I left there, I know that he will do that. Now, the next time I have problems with my car, I don't ask you or anybody else where to take it. Hell, I take it right back to John. Only this time I took it on faith. I took it on knowledge. You can't start with faith. The best that any of us can possibly do is we must start with belief. And then as certain actions transpire and take place, then we'll know and then we can have faith. So I don't have to have faith in order to begin. I've just got to believe. Do I believe there's a power greater than I am that can restore me to sanity? You bet you I do. And I'm assured that I'm on my way to the finding of that power through that belief. You know, My God, what great information. Old idea cast aside, replaced with another new one. Many years ago, I threw a little sober spell trying to get back with my first wife. I was serious. I went to the, see her preacher, the church that she went to all the time. And he sat me down across the table and looked at me in all sincerity. He said, Joe, what seems to be your problem? Well, I didn't know what my problem was. Not really. I told him what I thought it was. It was her. I told him, if you live with her, you drink too. <laughs> well, he said, you must, and boy, did he emphasize that word, you must have faith in these things. And he told me what they were. And I couldn't have faith in those things. You know why? Because I didn't even believe them. 
How can you have faith in something that you don't even believe? Thank God the second step said you could come to believe. And that's what I did. It says, when people presented us with spiritual approaches, that preacher, how frequently did we say, I wish I had what that man has. I'm sure it would work if I could only believe as he believed. But, can I, but I cannot accept as surely true, true the many articles of faith which are so plain to him. So it was comforting to learn that we could commence at a simpler level. And that little exercise that was presented to me was a simpler level. And I could do that. And I came. And I came to believe eventually. Now, if I know I need the power, and if I know the starting of the finding of the power is to believe or to be willing to believe, the next thing I need to know is what kind of procedure am I going to follow in order to find that power to get from belief to faith. Let's go over on page 51, first paragraph. So this world of ours has made more material progress in the last century than all the millenniums which went before. Almost everyone knows the reasons. Students of ancient history tell us that the intellect of men in those days was equal to the best of today. Yet in ancient times, material progress was painfully slow. The spirit of modern scientific inquiry, research, and invention was almost unknown. I used to wonder why it is that we have cell phones and televisions and jet airplanes. Are we just smarter than those people 200 years ago or 500 years Are we just smarter? And the answer is no, because they have the same intellect. Intellect means the capacity to learn. They have the same capacity to learn as we do. He said, in the realm of the material, men's minds were fettered by superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. That's why I kept them in the dark ages, so to speak. Even here in America, in the northeast corner of our country, everybody came there primarily from Europe so they could practice their religion the way they wanted to, for religious freedom. As long as they kind of practiced their religion in the same way the group conscience of the area did, you were okay. But if you had an idea that was different from those people and you expressed it, they would burn you as a witch if you expressed those ideas, because that was heresy. And so if you had any ideas that were different, you damn sure you kept them to yourself, wouldn't you? And that's what they did. Because in because of superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. I think we're over that today, thank God. And I, as I said here today, the only thing that would keep me from growing spiritually would be superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. I need an open mind more today than I've ever needed an open mind so that I might learn more and learn more and learn more. Because the more I know, the better I do. Some of the contemporaries of Columbus thought a round earth was preposterous. And I think Columbus is one of the great examples that we've ever been able to find of what you can do based upon belief. You know, back in Columbus's day, about a little over 500 years ago, nearly everything that was a part of the civilized, what they called the civilized world in those days, was centered on the shores of the Mediterranean, or they were on, in Western Europe. And they had found a place called the East Indies. In the East Indies, they had all kinds of gold and silk and spices and etc. And they were trying to find a new trade route to the East Indies. 
The only way they could go was to sail to the northeast end of the Mediterranean, travel by camelback, horseback, footback, however it traveled, and that trip took years to make, and they wanted to get there and get back faster. And somebody said, is there any way that we could sail a ship to the East Indies? And they said, well, no, dummy. Don't you know the only thing you can do is sail to the northeast end of the Mediterranean and then go by land? And they said, well, what would happen if we sailed in the other direction? They said, well, dummy, don't you know that the world is flat? And if you sail out there in that direction, you're going to sail right off the edge of this sucker. Now, I don't know why they believe that. I assume some people sailed out there and didn't come back. And they assumed that they sailed off the edge of it. Now, the whole world was living on a lie. The whole world was living on a lie. And here comes Columbus. He's probably alcoholic. Columbus had to be... <laughs> Columbus had to be alcoholic. You know, you've got to be tough and stubborn and bullheaded to be willing to express a belief that is different than everybody else's. And Columbus made one of the most drunk statements the world's ever heard. He said, I believe we can get east by sailing west. And if I didn't drunk thinking, I don't know what is. He said, I don't believe this thing's flat. I believe it's round. Everybody else thought for sure that it was flat. Many of his mannerisms showed that he was alcoholic, because when he left, he didn't know where he was going. <laughs> When he got there, he didn't know where he was. <laughs> when he got back, he didn't even know where he'd been. <laughs> but what really made him alcoholic is a woman financed the whole trip for him. Yeah. Had to be pure alcoholic. She did that twice. Now, Columbus followed a little formula that the world has always known to get from belief to faith. If you uh, write down these key words, just the one word, key words. The first thing you have to do to be able to change anything, period, you have to be willing to change. And circumstances are what made Columbus willing to change his belief. Everybody thought the world was flat, and Columbus became willing to change his belief. The second thing you have to do is to change what you believe. He said, I don't believe this sucker's flat. I believe it's round. I believe we can get east by sailing west. But his belief didn't do him any good because he's still standing on the shore of the ocean the day he expresses that belief. Some days, weeks, months later, Columbus did the third thing you have to do. He made a decision to go find out. Is it really round or flat? Can you really get east or west? By golly, I'm going to go find out. But his decision didn't do him any good either. Because he's still standing on the shore of the ocean the day he expressed that decision. Some days, weeks, months, years later, Columbus began to do the fourth thing you have to do. He began to take some action. He went to the king of Portugal to get the money. And the king of the Portugal, being an astute businessman, said, Columbus, there's no way I'm going to let you have this money. You'll sail out there and sail right off the edge of this sucker, and I'll lose it all. That's why he ended up with the Queen of Spain. 
sweet-talked her out of the money on the basis that he would bring back gold, silk, spices, and all the goody-goodies. He said, trust me, honey, I'll do so. Do it, yeah. And she let him have the money. And he took that money and he bought three ships. He put provisions in those three ships. He put crew members in those three ships. They began to go east by sailing west, day after day after day after day after day, sailing west. Now, we don't know for sure, but we suspicion on this first trip. He probably hired a special sailor, put him on a bow of the lead ship at night with a lantern, whispered in his ear, said, I believe this thing is round, but if you see the edge of this damn thing, you holler so we can get turned around. <laughs> now, after sailing straight west day after day after day after day after day, as the result of the action, they got results. They found land on the other side. Now, we know he thought it was the East Indies. It wasn't. It's what we call today the West Indies. But what he had proven to himself is the world is not flat. It is round. You will not sail off the edge of it. He got the results from the action that he took. He turned around. He came right back to Europe and went right back to the Queen of Spain. And she said, Columbus, where's the gold, silk, and spices you promised you would bring me? And he said, sweetheart, I'm sorry, I didn't find any. But he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you'll refinance me again, trust me, babe, I'll go back and this time I'll find it. She refinanced him. He got more ships, more provisions, more crew members. They began to go east by sailing west with one big difference. He didn't have the special sailor on the bow of the lead ship at night with a lantern looking for the edge of it. Because, you see, now he knew that the world was round. He got the results from the actions that he had taken on the first trip. The only way you can change from belief to knowledge or faith is through taking action. Now, I'd like to tell you today that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are brand new. The world's never seen anything like them. But if I did, I'll tell you a lie. Because they're based on the same formula that Columbus and every other human being has ever used to change anything throughout our entire history. In order for you and I to change our alcoholic situation, the first thing we have to do is we have to be willing to do so. That comes from step one. The second thing we have to do is to believe that we can do so. That comes from step two. But the belief's not going to do us any good if we don't make a decision. And that comes from step three. And the book's going to tell us that step three will have a little permanent effect unless it once followed by a strenuous course of action. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. And in step twelve, we get results. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. I no longer believe that God will restore me to sanity. I know that He will because He's done so. And those of us that have had the spiritual awakening, those of us that have been restored to sanity, we can go back and help the next newcomer come to believe. 
they can decide and we can take them by the hand and walk with them through the action steps and they'll get results and they'll have a spiritual awakening and then they can help the next newcomer come to believe and it's a cycle that's been going on over and over and over and over there's only one place that you and I cannot help the newcomer we cannot make the newcomer willing that's a job they have to work on themselves and how does an alcoholic become willing to change? Very simple. Drinking whiskey. And if they're not willing to change, there's nothing we can do for them. But if they drink enough of that whiskey till they're almost dead and they're willing to change, then we can help them. You know, a guy told me, he said, hell, I've been working on step one in AA for three years. And I said, no, you haven't. You don't work on step one in AA. You work on step one out there drinking that booze. And then you become willing to change. And then we can help you believe and you can decide and we can help you act and you'll get results. Isn't that simple? Such a simple little deal. And I always thought this finding God thing was going to be a very complicated procedure. But it really isn't. We just got to be willing. And we have to believe or become willing to believe. We have to decide and we have to act and we'll get results. Now, if I know I need the power... And if I know the beginning of the finding of the power is to believe or be willing to believe that there is a power greater than, you, than human power, if I know the procedure to follow, excuse me, if I know the procedure to follow to find that power, then I only need to know one more thing. Where am I going to find this power? And I think we get just as confused about where we're going to find this power as we ever were confused about what God is. As a kid growing up in church somewhere, I got a picture in my mind of God. Now, I don't know whether I saw the picture or I dreamed the picture, but to me, God was a tall, elderly gentleman standing on a cloud up in the sky. Long, flowing white robes on, long, flowing white hair, golden halo around his head, sun rays shooting out of that halo, and a big stick in his right hand. Now, I don't know whether I saw that or whether I dreamed it, but I think one thing that made me believe that is that I noticed every time the minister in church wanted to talk about God, he always pointed up there. So I knew God had to be up there somewhere. But then what really confused me is I noticed every time the minister wanted to talk to God, he always looked down here. He points up, look, look. hell no wonder we get confused as kids in church about this God thing. And I looked and I looked and I looked and I looked and I never could find God. And the reason I couldn't is I didn't know where he was. And I didn't find out where he is until I went to page 55 in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. And it tells me exactly where I'm going to find him. I had this little fellow I was working with in a halfway house years ago, and he really helped me. I thought I was helping him. He asked me to be a sponsor, and I said I would. And he said, what do you think I ought to do? I said, I think you ought to get a job and get out of this place for one thing. He said, well, easy for you to say, I don't have any wheels. I can't find a job. If I had a car, I would. I said, well, I'll take you and help you find a job. And we did. And I'm taking him back and forth to work. And one morning he told me a story that changed my life. 
And the story went like this. He said there was these three wise men from, from the east, the way he put it, and they stole from man and woman the crown of life, the thing that would make them the happiest. And they took it away from them, and he said, now what are we going to do with it? One of them said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take it to the highest crevice and the highest mountain on the face of the earth, and we'll hide it up there, and they'll never be able to find it there. The other two said, yeah, but you know how they are. They'll hunt, and they'll search, and they'll eventually find it. The other said, I'll tell you what, we'll take it to the deepest ocean, the deepest crevice and the deepest ocean, and hide it there. They'll never be able to get to it there. The other two said, yeah, but you know how they are. They'll hunt, and they'll search, and they'll eventually find it. The third one said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's hide it within him, and he'll never look for it there. And on page 55, it says, Yet we've been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation from this world. People rose above their problems. They said God made these things possible, and we only smiled. We'd, we had seen spiritual release, but like to tell ourselves it wasn't true. Actually, we were fooling ourselves, for deep down in every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some, some form or other it's there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives with facts as old as man himself. See, we're just born with it. It's just there all along. We finally saw that faith in some kind of a God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a factor as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. And the last analysis is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. You know, we believe today that every human being on earth has inside themselves, probably lying at a subconscious level, the knowledge of what we need to be in order to do the right thing, the knowledge of how to live the right kind of life, the knowledge of knowing when we're not living the right kind of life, and etc. Now, a lot of people might want to call that just plain old common sense. A lot of people might want to call it innate intelligence. Some might want to call it the conscience, and others might want to call it the soul. I don't think it really makes any difference what we call it as long as we recognize the fact that it's there. And as I look back in my lifetime, I know today that it's always been with me. I used to be getting ready to do something in my mind somewhere from inside me would say into my mind, Charlie, I don't think you ought to be doing this. And I wouldn't pay a bit of attention to it. I'd go ahead and do it. And I'd just get in one hell of a shape. And that same little voice would say, see, I told you not to do it. Now, if that knowledge is God, and it comes from inside me, then that means that God dwells within me. And if God dwells within me, then, then he's my God. I don't have to worry about whether he's the God of the Baptist church or not anymore. I don't worry about whether he's a God of the Catholic Church, the Hebrew religion, or anybody else's religion. If he dwells within me, he's my God. And he and I can come together in some very simple and understandable terms. Greatest information I've ever learned in my lifetime. 
And through this little chapter, I was able to cast aside those old prejudices, those old ideas I had about God. Through this little chapter, I was beginning to develop some new ideas about God. And I'm beginning to think by now that, you know, He just might be a kind and a loving God. He doesn't necessarily have to be hellfire and brimstone. And if He dwells within me, He's my God. Now am I ready to make a decision? You betcha. But without this chapter, I could never have made the decision. This chapter has opened the door for millions of we alcoholics to be able to discard the old beliefs and accept some new ideas and start on the road to the finding of a power greater than human power. Well, the next paragraph, very important. So we can only clear the ground a bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, which is old ideas, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself, then if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. Now get this. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. See, God will disclose to you that there's a God. He will just, the consciousness of your belief will sure to come to you. And once that happens, nobody, but nobody can improve upon that idea except you with an open mind. That's all this chapter is about. That's all we've got for this morning. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you later on. John will be back at 1.30. Should we close this meeting? <laughs> I'm a little bit afraid to say anything now. <laughs> My name is Charlie Parman. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Hi, Charlie. You all look like you're doing great. Are you getting a little bit tired? Are you getting kind of sleepy? I don't blame you. I, I get that way too. We've uh, we finally earned to sleep with our with our eyes open. I talk a while and Joe sleeps, and he talks a while and I sleep, and we get it all together. We haven't told a joke in a long time, have we? No. Huh? Tell a joke. No, Joe was telling that story about the uh, the guy the highway patrol stopped and and wanted to see his driver's license and gave him a ticket for speeding and all that. Uh, another story I heard is about when the Pope, the Pope was in New York City, and of course they took him all over the town and they always travel in a big limousine. And One morning the Pope went down early before any other, other crowd got there and the, and the chauffeur was down there with the limousine and the Pope said, you know, I used to just love to drive. And he said, ever since I've been the Pope, they won't let me drive anywhere. I sure sure would like to drive a vehicle again. And the chauffeur said, well, your highness said, that won't be any problem. He, he said, you get in the front seat and drive, and I'll get in the back seat, and we'll just go for a ride. And the windows are tinted anyhow. Nobody will be able to see who's driving. So they got in this big limousine, and the Pope was driving, and the chauffeur was riding in the back seat, and took off down one of the freeway interstates, and he got a little heavy on the foot, and got to going too fast, and he went by a couple of motorcycle cops. And they took out after him and put the sirens on, and 
Finally, they pulled him over to the side, and one cop stayed back in the back while the other one went up to the car. And he went up to the car, and he motioned to lower the window, and the window came down, and and the cop looked in the car, and all of a sudden he just stepped back and motioned to roll the window up, and just motioned him on down the road. And we went back to where his partner was, and his partner said, "What is? What are you doing?" He said, "Why didn't you give that guy a ticket?" That we had him dead to rights for speed, and you should have written him a ticket. And the cop said, "You don't know who was driving that car, do you?" And the other cop said, "No, I don't." And he said, "Well, the Pope was driving that car." And he said, "You know, if the Pope was driving that car, you know who was in the back seat." <laughs> this guy died and went to heaven. He got me telling stories now. Got up there and there was a line, really long line. Pretty soon a big roar, yay, comes from up front. And he said, what's going on up there? The answer came back, they're not counting adultery. Yay. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, they get worse after they that. Get worse. <laughs> We'll about run out of Joe. Okay, I can see Bill Wilson now. Remember, he's the primary author of the book. And I can see him as he finished up with a chapter four, probably once again sitting down and reviewing what he's done up to this point. Able to say to himself, I've been able to show them the problem. In the doctor's opinion, in my story, Bill's story, I've been able to show them a solution in chapter 2. I've been able to tell them what's going to happen to them because of the insanity in chapter 3 if they don't find that solution. And he probably says, I've been able to give them some new ideas about that solution in chapter 4. And hopefully, hopefully, they've cast aside some old ideas and replaced some new ones and now then, they're probably ready to make a decision. And he said, I think I've told them all I need to tell them now about the problem and the solution. And now then, I need to start talking to them about the program of action. Now remember, up until this time, they had been using the Oxford Group tenants. They had made six little steps from the Oxford Group tenants that they were using. One was called Surrender, and another one was called Examine Your Sins, and another one called Sharing and Confessing, another one called Restitution, and then another Praying to God and Try to Give This Thing Away, something similar to that. And Bill had had enough experience from 1935 until now it's 1938 He'd had enough experience working with other alcoholics that he could see the loopholes in that little six-step program of action. And he could see where the alcoholic mind could slip through these loopholes and not really have to do the things that they needed to do in order to get full recovery. He knew that the steps needed to be expanded 
to give them more strength, more depth for the alcoholics. He didn't know how far or how many, but he knew he needed to expand them. He was also having a lot of problem when it comes to this God thing. You know, most of the people that first came into AA were Protestant people. Not too long after that, Catholic people started showing up. Wasn't too long, we began to see some Jewish people coming in. We began to see a sprinkling of Muslims coming on the scene. And he's getting ready to write a set of instructions on how to find this power or how to find God. And how in the world can you do that in talking about this God thing without alienating other people? And he said he tried and he tried and he tried and he tried to get started on chapter 5. He said he just couldn't do it. And one night, while in bed, leaning against the headboard, pillow behind his back, pad and pencil in hand, trying to start chapter 5, he said, I finally just gave up. He said, I put the pad and pencil down, prayed and meditated for a few minutes, and asked God for direction and help in the writing of this thing. And he said, in about 15 or 20 minutes, I picked up the pad and pencil. <clears throat> and he said, it felt as if the... <clears throat> God, I hope I don't lose it all. <clears throat> I did that one time, and it was in California at that time, too. <clears throat> he lost his voice, and I fainted. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, we had a hell of a time that Sunday morning, I'll guarantee you. He said, I picked up the pad and pencil, and it felt as if the pencil had a mind of its own as it raced across the pages. In a matter of 20 or 30 minutes, he wrote how it works. He didn't know how many steps. <clears throat> Joe, you're going to have to do it. He didn't know how many steps he had until he put that cough up. Until after he wrote the steps, and he numbered them. 12 steps and that didn't signify anything particularly I guess they asked him about it sometime later and he said well it might have to do with the 12 disciples or something I don't know but it's 12 steps is what we had and it wasn't long until a couple of guys came up to see Bill there was this fellow who brought this new guy by to meet Bill Bill was glad to see him and brought him on in and said boys I want to show you something we've got the, the first steps of Alcoholics Anonymous the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this old fellow said, Bill, you've got 12 steps? Yesterday we had six. Now we got 12. Well, how would you like to go home this afternoon and go back to your meeting? And they got 24 steps. Be a little bit upset. <clears throat> so they said, you know, uh, you've got 12 steps here. Moses only needed 10. You know? So the stuff really hit the fan then. Are you better now? So anyhow, we have 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I'm going to read to you the 12 steps here while Charlie is getting together. 
And this is the, the original manuscript on how he wrote that that first night. And this is, and I'm going to try to, to change my tone of voice when I get to the words that they change a little bit later, so you can uh, see what he what he meant by the twelve steps. Well, this is how it works in the original manuscript. It said rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our directions. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They're not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a way of life which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. If you've decided you want what we have and are willing to, to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to follow directions. At some of these, you may balk. You may think you can find an easier, softer way. We doubt if you can. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that you are dealing with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for you. But there is one who has all power, and that one is God. You must find him now. Half measures will avail you nothing. You stand at the turning point. Throw yourself under his protection and care with complete abandon. Now we think you can take it. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as your program of recovery. One, admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care and direction of God as we understood him. Over the care and direction of God as we understood him. Remember that. We'll refer to it later on. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely willing that God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly, on our knees, Ask him to remove our shortcomings, holding nothing back. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed became willing to make complete amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our contact with God praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual experience as a result of this course of action, we tried to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now you may exclaim, what an order I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. 
The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic. That's the doctor's opinion. Some of it in chapters 2 and 3. The chapter 2 of the agnostic. That's chapter 4. And our personal adventures before and after. Bill's story and those in the back of the book. Have been designed to sell you three pertinent ideas. Well, Bill was a salesman, you know. A, that you are alcoholic and cannot manage your own life. Step one. B, that probably no human power can relieve your alcoholism. Part of step two. C, that God can and will. The rest of step two. Now, if you're not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else just throw it away. I think it's quite easy to see that Bill did not intend for this to be a set of suggestions. He intended for it to be a set of directions to the individual alcoholic on how to recover from alcoholism. And when the other members saw it, that's when the crap hit the fan. They said, Bill, you don't have any business giving anybody directions on how to do anything. You don't have any business telling people what they can do, what they can't do, and what they have to do. And they said also, Bill, these statements they're using in here, like humbly on our knees asking to remove our shortcomings, holding nothing back, like make complete amends and et cetera. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.